0: Good Thursday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow's Friday, but we are on the way to making it there. Well, um, it's good to be back on the air, and we have another um, exciting um, chapter, or not so much chapter, but another um, exciting but yet um, heartbreaking chapter session tonight to talk about with regards to the Edmund Fitzgerald. What we're going to be discussing tonight is the Fitzgerald's, the saga, or not so much the saga, but the final um, part of her final voyage. That is her last night in existence, the night she would ultimately fall out of sight. On the early evening of November 10th, 1975, The Fitzgerald wasn't just struggling, but the Fitzgerald was struggling to survive on the waters of Lake Superior, given just how rapidly the weather itself had deteriorated. And, you know, think about it uh, from the last podcast, I mentioned about how there was two to four mile visibility. Uh, The waves were getting um, more uh, tense. Ten to fifteen foot right ten to foot fifteen foot waves coming over the ship and you know producing green water and just you know water in general it becomes um you know to those who are new uh, to the great lakes it's probably something that does scare them, as I mentioned from the previous podcast that those who were veterans who'd been around for a long time this was nothing new. But still, if you haven't experienced anything like this before, it is very um, you know scary to say the least. I would almost have to say surviving a shipwreck is like the equivalent of being survival of the fittest. How so because you've learned to wither out the worst of the storms and it, and how you and how one has kept their composure during that whole time I don't know, but somehow they've they seem to manage to do it. So on the early evening of November tenth, 1975, the Fitzgerald has lost most of its freeboard. And of course, freeboard means the distance between the waterline and the spar deck. The ship was listing heavily to the starboard, the right side facing the bow. And when a ship is listing, that means that it's, um, that it's not obviously on even ground. So here's a bonus question right here. Uh, what challenges did darkness itself present? The, the challenges were more than just one um, aspect. When darkness really sets in, it becomes more difficult for a ship to gauge the height of the waves to seeing the damage which would if I could speak, which the waves themselves can inflict, as well as determining whether the hatch covers are still secure. Those hatch covers are essential because they are the ones that um, secure, not just so much they are properly secured, their main intention is to keep water from flowing into the cargo hold. So, you have to remember, folks, this ship has already lost both of its antennas. Uh, they have no means of communicating with uh, the lighthouse at Whitefish Point. Uh, Captain Ernest McSorley could still communicate with the Arthur Anderson. He could communicate with another ship if he wanted to, but he's primarily communicating with the Arthur M. Anderson. But when you have your main <clears throat> headquarters station um being in Whitefish Point that's lost power, it becomes all the more difficult to um, to do the normal, um, what do you call it, emergency communication protocol. As for this low-pressure system, it's moving off of Lake Superior, and while that's a good thing, conditions still remain bad. There are now 20 to 30-foot waves smashing the Fitzgerald from behind. Winds are howling in excess of 60 mile an hour with gusts as high as 90, including heavy snow. Now, I can't imagine being on a, not just on a ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald, an ore freighter, but on any ship that's out in the water dealing with 20 to 30 foot waves Winds howling in excess of, say, 60 miles an hour with gusts up to 90. I can only, I can only fathom the thought of knowing firsthand what uh, brutal conditions the weather itself presented that night. But there have been many um, instances where men have survived in those kinds of harrowing conditions and have lived to tell their stories course, one would wonder, if you live to survive that kind of story, why would you go back out in the water and do it again? Well, remember, people, the men who are out on the Great Lakes, this is their livelihood. And they I don't know if they probably know any better, but this is what they've been trained to do all their life. And many of these men have, have had other family members come before them who uh, spent their lifetime on the water. So, it can be a um, a family generation thing, or it just could be someone's love for the water and all the risks that come with it. But I can't say that it would take a special person to be out there even in the worst of conditions with 20 to 30 foot waves and winds of up to 60 miles an hour. Uh, but then again, think about what our European explorers encountered in their day in terms of um brutal weather conditions, howling winds um whether it was Christopher Columbus or Amerigo Vespucci, any of those European explorers dealt with um with the unexpected but yet still made a contributing um, asset to navigational history and to the navigational uh world of um exploring uh the Americas but anyways. Back to our primary segment of The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The Arthur Anderson, who has been by the Fitzgerald's side this whole entire time, is 10 miles behind the Fitzgerald. Like the Fitzgerald herself, the Arthur Anderson is enduring large waves, one hitting its bridge deck nearly 35 feet above the water. The Fitzgerald is running pretty much blind, She's dependent upon the Arthur Anderson for all kinds of uh, communications. As for the Fitzgerald, her, she, she really has two options by now. That is, number one, to arrive into Whitefish Bay or to surrender. Well, if I'm Captain Ernest McSorley, I will do everything there is in my power to still make sure that... Um, that the crew as a whole, including myself, still arrive into Whitefish Point, Whitefish Bay, um, as safe as possible, considering how much um, has already gone on. I mean, think about it. Are you going to surrender out there in the middle of the water? No. If anybody does that, then they ought to be frowned upon as a coward because, you know, it's one thing to be captain of your ship but if you aren't going to take responsibility and get get your crew through the worst of the weather, then how can you be looked upon as a true leader even in a time of crisis like this one? So at around 10 after 7, or I should say 7.10, on the evening of November 10th of 1975, Captain McSorley takes... A call from the Anderson. He has received the go-ahead to proceed forward with this, With the target being Whitefish Point, which is about 10 to 15 miles ahead. Now, at 10 to 15 miles, you know, when we drive a car, when we're driving by car, for example, from point A to point B is only 15 miles. That doesn't seem long at all. But there's a big difference between being on an ore freighter versus driving your car. Well, of course, you've got to be careful on the road. It's going to take you, it won't take you as slow to get to your destination, whereas by ship and the conditions that the Fitzgerald is enduring, 10 to 15 miles still seems like an eternity. So the Fitzgerald. Is going to pass to the west of the Arthur Anderson. The Anderson's last known request that was actually recorded, communication that is directly to Captain Ernest McSorley of the Fitzgerald, was as follows How are you making out with your problems? We are holding our own, Ernest McSorley answered. What do you think he meant when he said, we are holding our own? It, to Ernest McSorley, this means that we are, we are doing everything there is possible to stay afloat. Yes, we've taken on some water, and yes, we have sustained some damage. But somehow, through thick and thin, we're, we have still managed to hold our ground. And Ernest McSorley himself has to remain confident that he could still make it to his final destination. If not, once again, how is the crew going to have confidence in him? The last thing any crew wants is a captain who is unsure all the time. Captains have to be trained to deal with just about anything that is unexpected. And that also would mean dealing with a wave that could be 25 feet long or or just say 25 feet high. I mean, you know, captains have to, they have seen just about everything, not just as captains, but in the years before reaching that rank. Being a captain of a ship just doesn't get handed to you overnight. It's something that has to be um, worked upon for a number of years. Here's another question. Let's uh, think about here. Was Captain Ernest McSorley worried at any given point in time that his ship, the Fitzgerald, appeared to be in some form of danger, given that she had already started to list more heavily on the starboard side? The answer is both yes and no. And I want you all to think to yourselves real quick. Usually when we hear the answer no, and all of a sudden... We're thinking to ourselves, well, why wasn't this person worried? I would have been scared out of my mind. As I stated a moment ago, captains have to be disciplined. And while, yes, they can be concerned about the inevitable, they have to be careful how much they show of it, because if they show too much of it, then they could be compromising everyone else's safety and then buckling down under pressure to where they themselves cannot perform their duties properly. So, the answer is that Captain McSorley himself internally, that is, from the inside, was concerned about his ship's well-being, but he also had to demonstrate good leadership under the worst of nature's unexpected wrath, a.k.a. the Gales of November. McSorley didn't want to cave under pressure and place further burden on other ships, So it's one thing not to um, put fear in your crew, but in this case, Captain McSorley, while, yes, he was talking to the Arthur Anderson on multiple occasions, especially with Captain Bernie Cooper, he had to ensure to Captain Cooper that he still was in control, which was a good thing. He, He needed to ensure Captain Cooper that, hey, Given that my ship has sustained some damages, I've still, I've still got confidence in myself. I've got confidence in the people around me. I've got confidence in my ship that, hey, we are still going to make it to Whitefish Point. And while, yes, it's important to reach out to other ships, how much of a burden does Captain McSorley want to be to everyone else? That's something you have to think long and hard about as well. Now, did other, or should I say, did captains of other ore freighter ships come to the Fitzgerald's defense regarding Captain McSorley's decision, or should I say, his decision handling of the Fitzgerald as it was facing the near inevitable? Uh, The answer is yes. And I've got two good examples. One of an actual captain who was on the waters of Lake Superior at the time the Fitzgerald would sink, and then another captain whose name was not identified, but obviously was very familiar, I wouldn't say just very familiar, he had known for all of his life, not just what it was like to sail on Great Lakes waters, but how to communicate not just with your crew, but with other ships in a proper um, manner. Well, the gentleman whose name I'm going to reveal, his name was Captain Dudley Paquette, he was a master of the ore freighter, the Wilfred Sykes. He was out on Lake Superior during the November 10th storm. Captain Dudley said for, said that silence itself was best respo- was the best response for a captain to have, while battling out stormy weather. You want your ca- according to Captain Dudley, in his mind, he said. You want your captain to have a firm control on what's at stake without losing composure to where the rest of the crew loses confidence. Now, he didn't say that directly, but based off of what I read from this book, that to me is what Captain Dudley truly believes in, in terms of, yes, having silence. But when you have silence, your captain also... Is displaying a firm sense of control. Too much distraction could cause uh, the a crew to fall into absolute chaos. It could cause the crew to um, become so ununified to where, hey, call it, to where no uh, proper decision can be made uh, that would benefit not just part of the crew, but the crew as a whole. Sometimes As an old saying goes, less said the better. That also can apply even to the most uh, trying of circumstances, especially when you are facing two to four miles of visibility, uh, blinding snow, um, not even having um, your antennas anymore. Uh, I mean, as I said from the previous night, when the ship lost both of its antennas, you might as well have assumed it was back in the 19th century So, as for this other individual whose name was not uh, revealed, I'd, I'm going to share with you all what was uh, noted in quotes, or in quotation marks, rather, but it is very true. So here's how I'm going to uh, word this. Another Great Lakes captain whose name wasn't mentioned said the following, You don't get on the radio where everyone on the lake can hear you. And talk about possibly sinking. If you know for certain that you're going down, that's one thing. But to holler that you might be sinking is asking for trouble. If you make it in okay, you'll be the laughing stock of every boat on the Great Lakes. It ain't professional. What you do is hang on and make a run for it and keep your mouth shut. Gosh, um, I can admit to, the, to you all right now here, when I first read this, it sounded harsh. But then I read it again, and then I said to myself, you know what, it doesn't sound harsh. This is, um, for starters, this is what tests a man's bravery out on the waters, or a captain's bravery. Not just the captain, but the whole crew's bravery. It's one thing to say to another ship that I'm experiencing some troubles. It's another thing all of a sudden to announce it to everyone. It's another, It's one thing to say that there's a possibility that if, if um, I don't make it to shore in enough time, there is a possibility that the ship could be in such danger to where sinking is possible But if you announce that to everyone, other crew, other captains are going to think to themselves, hey, did Captain Tom Smith do everything there was in his own power to modify the inevitable? Or did Tom Smith do everything there was before making an announcement over the radio that his ship could possibly sink. So in other words, as a captain, you need to do everything there is possible first before resorting to the inevitable. In other words, you've got to use every capability and every other option available first before you finally just radio in and say, hey, my ship is taking on so much water that it's only going to be a matter of minutes before before we literally can run the risk of sinking and it is true you don't want to be the laughing stock you don't want other captains frowning upon you and saying man tom smith was a wimp you know here he was screaming at the top of his lungs and didn't know how to um didn't know how to keep his uh, crew under control or even let alone his own self under control you know here he is asking everybody else to bail him out when he can't even um do the simplest of tasks so the bottom line is it's one thing to be in a crisis but it's how you handle, handle yourself in that crisis that will either make or break not just for who you are as an individual but it will either make or break for the safety of your crew so the bottom line is, bottom line is this you've got to not only be thinking about yourself as a captain you have to be thinking about your crew even in the darkest of moments but you've got to Figure out hey, before I radio anyone for assistance, what can I do on my end to mitigate the worst case scenario and that's why i I can have a better appreciation for why Ernest McSorley only communicated with one ship, and that was the Arthur M. Anderson. It wasn't that he didn't have anything against. The other ships, but there again, if he communicated with everybody about his problems, um, you know, McSorley himself could be could have been frowned upon by another uh, ship and and those crew people saying, "Hey, why isn't this guy doing any more? Why isn't he doing more than what he's capable of doing?" That's why it makes all the more sense when McSorley said in his final response with the. Um, Arthur M. Anderson, we are holding our own ground meaning that, hey, even, on the, even under the darkest of circumstances, we are doing everything there is in our power to stay afloat and surrendering at this point is the worst option because if you surrender, there again, you could be frowned upon and think about it you could even, if you even live to survive that um, terrible um, wrath of destruction, who knows, maybe you could be charged for um, neglecting your ship and the, and the people who serve below you. I can honestly say this, that um, that Captain Ernest McSorley, in my opinion, was a much more braver individual than the entire crew of the Titanic, I say that because the crew of the Titanic purposely ignored all the ice warnings back on April the 14th or the 15th of 1912. That cr- The crew totally ignored all the warnings. They were so convinced that with this ship being unsinkable that it could avoid anything in sight, including a massive iceberg. <laughs> well, we all know what happened there. When the Titanic uh, decided to take a hard left turn... To go starboards starboard side what do you know the worst part of the icebergs right at the bottom and the rest is history the Edmund Fitzgerald wasn't trying to break it I mean she broke several records for cargo holds but she wasn't trying to break a record to get into Whitefish Point but sadly here's a story where the crew of the Fitzgerald operated their ship properly. All of the other captains on the ship had done the same, even McSorley himself. But the sad part is, is that here's a case where the Edmund Fitzgerald isn't trying to outsmart Mother Nature, or outdo her. They are simply trying to make their destination in time, even under the harshest of circumstances. Whereas Titanic Was more concerned about breaking records by doing so, even in the utmost negligent ways. Given that Captain McSorley's last known words were that of, We are holding our own to the Arthur Anderson, was it just a short amount of time afterward that the Fitzgerald would vanish forever? The answer is yes, and I, I want I want you all um, out there to pay very careful attention to how I'm going to uh, describe all of this. No one actually saw the Fitzgerald sink, but Captain McS- Captain uh, Bernie Cooper did see where she went out of sight on the radar. For starters, no distress calls were sent out from the Fitzgerald. Why was that? Well, just after 7 p.m., the first, apparently the first great wave hit the Fitzgerald with such sheer force that the ship itself never had time to react. The ship's bow pushed well beneath the lake's surface. The cargo hold was already under stress and would endure further flooding. And I think it's fair to say that, that the Fitzgerald had hit um, a shoal in that uh, Six Fathom Shoal area between uh, Mishapikatin and Caribou Islands on the eastern edge of Lake Superior. And when it hit a shoal, it was probably, right away, uh, the ship was still fl- was still able to move but I would—it's probably fair to say that the um, that the waves, the onslaught of waves that came, were really the straws that broke the camel's back. So, the first wave hits the Fitzgerald with with such sheer force that obviously the ship itself never had time to react. Um, as I said a second ago, the ship's bow pushed well beneath the lake's surface. The cargo hold—the cargo hold—is already under so much stress which would endure further flooding. A second wall of water kept the bow from reaching the back to the surface. And once the pilot house windows, and the pilot houses being that top, very top level of the ship, once um, the pilot house windows blew in, an onslaught of water made its way through, causing the Fitzgerald to become violently unstable. And what do you mean by violently unstable? Well, the ship's middle section buckled. And think about it, people. Um, how, how, is this, how is the ship's middle section buckling? Well, there's already water f- flooding into the cargo hold. So as a result of the ship's middle section buckling, it's causing it. To, the the middle section now is being forced to twist uncontrollably, to where hatch covers are blowing out, scattering taconite everywhere. So therefore now, the hatch covers are virtually over. They are virtually stressed out. They can take no more. Um, Absorption of water coming in at such a rapid pace to where they are finally just giving out. And now you have taconite pellets everywhere. And remember, as I said early on, when we began this uh, topic or discussion on the Fitzgerald, taconite pellets, the the biggest challenge taconite pellets themselves faced was that when they took? Is that they could take on a lot of water? That is seven to nine pounds per cubic foot of water. So we have already exceeded the threshold of seven to nine uh, cubic um, pounds of seven to nine pounds of cubic water. We probably could be looking right now at between fifteen and twenty. I, I honestly don't know, but I would say that it's well above the seven to nine pound um, cubic uh, water uh, threshold the fitzgerald's lights are flickering left and right and as they went out also her two lifeboats broke free and remember folks two lifeboats we've got 29 uh, men on the boat so that means you could have up to 14 in one 15 in the other i'm just going to you know throw out some random numbers and yes fitzgerald the fitzgerald was the titanic of the great lakes but remember she doesn't She's not a she's not a cruise line ship. She is a ore freighter. But whereas Titanic has well over what two thousand um, passengers and thirty two lifeboats, that's a big difference in the number of lifeboats. But as the lifeboats are breaking free, her bow, and re- and remember this is all what the author Michael Schumacher has done here. He is basically he's painting to us a horrid description of what probably happened in her last uh, minutes as a ship. Because remember, nobody um, actually saw this happen, but this is all speculation and circumstantial, but it's a very, very uh, provocative description of what probably did happen to the Fitzgerald in her final minutes. So, Her bow is ramming into Lake Superior's floor with tremendous force, moving through mud and silt, leading to a 30-foot gash into the lake's bottom. The stern remains on the surface as the bow hits the lake floor, but the stern itself would surrender once the water flooded into the back of the ship, which set the boilers on fire. The bow came to a halt at the bottom of the lake in an upright position, whereas the stern would land upside down and This was all on in Canadian waters people. This is where the Fitzgerald lies today she 's on the Canadian side of Lake Superior, five hundred and thirty feet below uh, the surface, and as I mentioned from a previous podcast. Its maximum depth is of, of Lake Superior in general is 1,333 feet. So being 530 feet below the surface, that's a big number, but it's not the ultimate um, depth. Inside the, the Fitzgerald sadly lies lied the remains of 29 men who had died from either immediate drowning to the explosion of boilers, Within a matter of minutes, one of the Great Lakes' most established iron ore freighters would be gone forever. This, is, this, is, this to me is very, um, it's very sad. Here this ship was 17 years old. She still was in the prime of her existence. She probably had another 8 to 10 years on her but the, but here she is 17 years old from the time she first went out in, in 1958 to now in 1975 she dies a horrid death a horrible death a death that she yeah. that she nor her crew asked for the fitzgerald while yes may have had a few mishaps a few years before 1975 These were mishaps that, while yes, some could have said may have been negligent, but they weren't deliberately. Captain Ernest McSorley never once endangered his crew. Neither did um, Captain Peter Pulser, who was the man before him. Neither did the other two captains as well. This was sadly a situation where Mother Nature got in the way and Mother Nature prevailed. I do believe it's fair to say that the crew of the ship had known all along that Mother Nature was a very dominant force and that no matter how well man had improved with the technologies in terms of reducing death on the sea, Mother Nature could still throw surprises or should I say curveballs left and right. But I cannot imagine being any one of those 29 men aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald the night she went down. I can't imagine what might have been in their thoughts. They didn't have really any time to prepare for this. They had no time to abandon ship. They were taken away in a matter of minutes. Their life was gone. For, For some of these men. They were on the verge of retiring. And all that was taken away from them. Well, as for the Arthur Anderson, did the Arthur Anderson herself or any other ship know what had just happened to the Fitzgerald? The answer is no. Captain Bernie Cooper did make out Three other ships from a distance, being the Nanfrey, Avafors, and Benfrey, whose lights he saw. The, these three ships all departed Whitefish Bay. Captain Cooper didn't see the Fitzgerald. The, what I should point out here is this. The Fitzgerald itself disappeared near Mishapikatan Island. It vanished from radar when the snowstorm and heavy waves took over the radar screen. That of the Arthur Andersons. This is fair to say that ships on the Great Lakes had a history of going missing in big storms, only to appear later on in calmer waters despite sustaining some form of damage. Well, why is it that so many other ships had luck, but why not the Edmund Fitzgerald? I mentioned this briefly last night, and I am going to mention it again in another podcast. And As a matter of fact, in another podcast, I will um, talk about Gordon Lightfoot's song, the, Edmund Fitz- the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, because it is a very powerful song. I've listened to that song multiple times, not with what I've been talking about right now, but in general. Um, As a matter of fact, about five or six years ago when I first heard the song, I wondered what it was about. So finally I took the initiative to find it out, and what do you know, it was about a ship that sunk, the one we're talking about. I also learned why this ship was so significant to the hearts of so many on the Great Lakes. But here's one of here's a very the song in general is very uh, powerful. But the line that I still find to be the most powerful of it all was the following: Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Well, as we all know, uh, God loves us. God is always looking after us, even in the darkest of times. I don't believe that God wanted these 29 men to lose their lives God was looking after them in this time of uncertainty God also knows God himself knows that he's not mother nature he didn't tell mother nature to do all this to wreak all this havoc on a ship only for all 29 men to lose their lives it might be fair to say that Given how quickly everything happened, is it fair to say that maybe it was a blessing that these men were not uh, fighting the high seas with the life jacket on, screaming for help, wondering if help itself would arrive, wondering if, hey, out in the pitch black at night, would would a ship's light from a distance recognize them? Who knows? And think about this too. Hypothermia sets in. Hypothermia doesn't... It doesn't take long for hypothermia to set in when the temperature of the water is below 30 degrees. You only have a short amount of time to live. And even if you do have a life jacket on and you're swimming for help, there's no guarantee that you might even last. The bottom line is the waves having turned... Into hours meant that Mother Nature was not going to relent. That no matter what direction or course a ship was taking at that not on that day and into the night, Mother Nature's presence was going to be felt. And while, yes, ships had dealt with the weight with difficult waves for minutes on this night of November 10th, 1975, the waves presented a different course. And even to Captain Ernest McSorley, he had never seen waves this rough. The bottom line is is that it's one thing for one wave to come along and and inflict um, harm to your ship. It's another thing for what lies below. And then being the shoal, but then an additional wave or two or multiple themselves that can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Captain Bernie Cooper and, his, uh, and one of his uh, mates below him, Morgan Clark, used every capability to locate the Fitzgerald on Lake Superior towards Whitefish Point. But all signals to communication with other ships came back negative Captain Cooper himself called out on the Coast Guard in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. I was really blown away at this. Captain Cooper realized that no one at the station was really concerned about the Fitzgerald. My gosh, here we are in the middle of a bad storm that is not letting up. Here you've got ships that have made it, but you've got this one that is in the eyes of so many people, not just mighty, not just grand, but a ship that everyone has looked up to for 17 years, up and down Lake Superior and making its way into Toledo, Ohio, You know, given that she was the Toledo Express every time she went that way. The bottom line is, how could one not be concerned about the well-being of the Edmund Fitzgerald? This is a good case of being pure ignorant. The Sault Ste. Marie Coast Guard became more... The, the reason why the Sault Ste. Marie Coast Guard wasn't as concerned about the Edmund Fitzgerald, probably in my opinion, was because they all assumed that she would make her way back. If she went out of sight on the radar, or if she went, out on, went off the radar sight, she would find a way to reemerge. I guess it's safe to say that those people who, or those men who were at the Coast Guard station in, S- in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, they probably assumed that she, w- that she would come back just like she had before from other storms, that there was nothing to worry about. The Coast Guard there is more concerned about another missing vessel with two men on board. This vessel is very very inferior in size to the Fitzgerald. So Captain Cooper will once again call the Coast Guard in Sault Ste. Marie nearly 40 minutes after the first call and expresses his concerns with greater force. It had been less than one hour since the Arthur Anderson had last had contact with Fitzgerald. Captain Cooper knew that, that even if he went out there to look, that there probably would not, that there would not be enough time to look for survivors. If any from the Fitzgerald were, were alive, they would be clinging on to dear life. Hypothermia would be setting in. If they were on a lifeboat, the waves themselves would toss the lifeboats themselves around left and right, and think about it, people. It's one thing to be on a lifeboat, but can you imagine being on a lifeboat and you've got 30-foot waves coming af- at you? Yeah, those waves will knock everyone off the lifeboat. And for all we know, that, that lifeboat could probably split in half because of the wave's sheer force. In essence, time itself wasn't on the side of the Anderson in and finding anyone from the Fitzgerald alive. I can't imagine being in Captain Bernie Cooper's shoes knowing that, uh, yes, maybe he didn't know Ernest McSorley very well, but both of these men um, were sticking their necks out for one another, not just for for one another as individuals, but for their crews in general. I can't imagine, though, for Bernie Cooper what, how sick he must have felt to his stomach knowing that he had to face the, the inevitable, the worst kind of reality, and that was knowing that the Edmund Fitzgerald was gone, she, that she vanished in just a matter of minutes. She vanished as a result of Mother Nature's, of Mother Nature's wrath, brought on by the gales of November. Why is it that the Arthur M. Anderson survived and not the Edmund Fitzgerald? Not that it shouldn't have been the other way around. Yes, God was looking after the Arthur M. Anderson. He was looking after all the ships out on Lake Superior that night. He was looking after the Fitzgerald, but sadly, Mother Nature took over. She took over to where the Fitzgerald was going and sadly, the Fitzgerald succumbed to the inevitable, meaning the, 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 for, the elements that were so powerful that no one had time to uh, plan for the inevitable. In other words, okay, we've been hit. We've got to abandon ship. How are we going to get out in time? None of that. Again, I just I can't imagine this. You know, it's one thing to, to hear about, um, to see reenactments on television of shipwrecks. Or it's one, it's one thing to hear, um, and I've obviously seen this on TV from years past, um, documentaries on Titanic, especially after the, the movie from the late 90s with James Cameron's A Titanic, about um, survivors who recalled seeing the Titanic sink. So you have to ask yourself, what if this had been me? What if I had been on a ship like the Fitzgerald, and all of a sudden I didn't have time to say goodbye? I didn't have time for anything. Death just took me without any preparation for it. It's one thing to pass away, but we don't even, but we as individuals don't always get to control how we wish to go. Do you, none of those twenty-nine men who died. Got the chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. So this is a very, a a very powerful um, ending for tonight's podcast, and and knowing that this ship um, is no longer—it's not that it's no longer around, but that she was taken well out of her prime. I mean, she was already in her prime, but she had so many more years to go. What I do know is this, is that the Arthur M. Anderson, believe it or not, the the ship that uh, Bernie Cooper captained, it's still in existence today. It's, It's still out on the waters at nearly 70 years of age. the next podcast we're going to be talking about people is we're going to now start talking about the inquiries, the investigations as to what uh, science, not just scientists, but uh, members of the, uh, what we would think of today as the national transportation safety board will be investigating their, um, their theories or what they believe caused the Fitzgerald to sink. And I think that should be very fascinating because you know, if you ask me, what do I think caused the Fitzgerald to sink? Well, I personally, I I think it's possible that, yes, she hit a shoal, but that the shoal alone, depending on where she was when she struck it, it wasn't enough to um, flatten the hole out. But obviously, with all the deadly um, forces of nature being those huge waves and the poor visibility, all of that, all of those other factors on top of the ship hitting the shoal earlier combined for the ship's ultimate uh, demise and a violent death. But as I mentioned a moment ago, we'll have to find out more in our next podcast session. Thank you for um, listening in tonight and just remember people that those who risk their lives on the sea, whether they're commercial fishermen or, um, or who serve on a laker ship, those men and women are risking their lives left and right. They are transporting goods to um, those who are dependent on, upon them, not just because they need the goods, but it's, be- it's because those goods represent a livelihood to a business's well-being. Who knows? The taconite pellets that would have gotten to Detroit would have been sent to steel mills, not just in Detroit, but in Gary, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, Cleveland, Ohio. Think about it. People's livelihoods were depending on this stuff. So it wasn't just 29 men who lost their lives. People who were needing those goods were impacted as well. But of course, you know, one could say, well, goods themselves can be replaced, but what about people? They can't be replaced. And how true that is. There's a double-edged sword right there. So thank you again for listening, and I'll look forward to another podcast session here soon. Take care and good night.